you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Romans chapter number 10. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, shame on you. Romans chapter number 10, we're going to start in verse number 1. I've entitled this, Missing God's Righteousness. For two reasons. One, it's, as we've been looking at over the past several weeks, we've looked at the fact that, that Israel has missed God's righteousness. They missed it when Jesus Christ was here. They continue to miss it today. And it's easy for us to fall into that trap as well. It's easy for us to miss God's righteousness. Satan is at work in our, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, on, online. He's, he's everywhere, and he's trying very, very hard to distract us from God's righteousness. Trying very hard to keep us from him. This shows the tragic mistake of Israel and the prayer that Paul has for Israel. And some warnings for us today. So let's start reading in verse number 1 of chapter number 10 of Romans. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That's Paul's prayer for Israel. These are people that he lived with. These are people that he, he served with. Remember, he, he served in the, in the Jewish religion. These are people he's very familiar with. And he's praying for Israel's salvation, that they could be saved. He's praying for them because the rejection of God doesn't make them hopeless eternally. It makes them hopeless for today. But by humbling themselves before God, by, by accepting the, the gift of, that Jesus Christ gave us on the cross, they don't have to be hopeless anymore. There is still hope for Israel. There was hope then and there's hope today. We should take Paul's example, by the way, and we should pray for Israel. I've heard some Christians say, well, Israel's walked so far, far away from God, I, I have a hard time praying for Israel. That's a reason to pray for them even more. Pray for the restoration of Israel. Pray that as a nation that the, they'll raise up godly leaders that will lead them back. It's happened before in history. Several times. And it can happen again today. We can see a restored Israel, not just restored politically, not just restored back to their land, but a restored spiritual Israel again today. We need to be praying for that. Paul's heart is breaking for Israel, and I hope your heart is too. That doesn't mean you have to agree and support everything that Israel does. How can you? They do some things they probably shouldn't do, just like every other country on this earth. I am proud to be an American. I, I, I praise God that he allowed me to be born here, but I don't agree with everything that America does. But I refuse to turn my back on my country because they do some things I don't do. I continue to pray for them. I continue to pray for our president. I continue to pray for Congress. I continue to pray for our local leaders. I continue to pray that this country will once again humble themselves before God. They will seek his face. They will turn from their wicked ways. And that should be our prayer for Israel as well. Paul prayed for their salvation. We need to be praying 
Too often when we start our, our prayer time on Wednesday night, we start praying for things, you know, we, we, we've talked about it before, where we pray for the hand of God without seeking first the face of God. If we seek the face of God, what we're going to see is what matters the most to God is the lost of this world. He wants to see the lost saved. And that's how we should be praying for Israel. For Israel and their leaders to be saved. Much of the world's heritage that is good and decent has come through the Jews. God has blessed this world through the Jewish people. John 4.22 says, You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. This was Jesus speaking to a non-Jew. He was telling you there is a blessing that you can receive and it's being brought to you through the Jewish people. But note, note Israel's great mistake. You see what it says? They had a zeal, and normally a zeal is a good thing. A zeal for God is usually a great thing. They had a zeal for God, but it was not based upon proper knowledge. It was based upon incomplete knowledge. They had a, the Jews, by the way, had a great deal of knowledge about God. But they, they were the ones that held on to the oracles. They were the ones that, that held on to the writings. They were the ones that, that had it. They were the ones that shared it with each other. They knew God in the Old Testament. But they had incomplete. They did not have complete knowledge of God. Not a full knowledge. Not a perfect knowledge. They did not have a, 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 an experiential knowledge of the truth. They knew what it looked like on paper. But they hadn't experienced the love of Jesus Christ. Christians, we can fall into that same trap. We can learn this book forwards and backwards, but if we don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we're missing the point. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in this book. Don't get me wrong. The world could, would be much better off, even the lost of this world would be much better off if they followed the teachings of this book, whether they believed in God or not. But understand, just to follow the teachings of this book and not accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's kind of all for naught. You're making things a little bit better here on this earth by pretending to be a Christian while sacrificing your eternity. The point is the Jews knew some things about God, but their knowledge was partial. They were ignorant of God's righteousness, of God's true nature, of his holiness. They didn't believe that they'd be judged by God, even though they'd been judged by God as a people over and over and over again. They didn't believe they'd be judged by God like the rest of the world because they're the Jews. They thought there was an exception for them. They didn't understand man's true nature that get lifted to ourselves, that we are just sinful creatures. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand God's mercy that he sent his son to die for us, to be our propitiation for sin. To take our place. Very simply, God was ignorant, or Israel was ignorant of God's methods of justification on how to restore us to Him. So, what did Israel do? Much like we do today, Israel created their own path of righteousness, they created their own religious rites, things that are of this world. They sought to make themselves acceptable to, to God through rituals, through ceremonies, through works. And they placed all the emphasis upon that. It's interesting that when Jesus was here on the earth, 
that the religious wanted to condemn him for, for working on the Sabbath. Because to them, you had to keep the Sabbath in order to be close to God. And even after Jesus tried to teach them that, that the Sabbath wasn't given for God, it was given for them. It wasn't something that was supposed to be a, a taskmaster. It wasn't supposed to be a hammer to beat them over the head with. It was supposed to be a blessing to them. And it was okay to, to take a bite of food. It was okay to go and pull a, a fruit off a tree on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not supposed to be our taskmaster. But they didn't get that. They missed out on that teaching. They missed out on that relationship with Jesus Christ who stood right before them. They sacrificed that for their rituals. We do that today. It's hard to find a church that doesn't have rituals. They don't usually call them rituals. They call them traditions. And there's nothing wrong with church tradition. Don't get me wrong. We don't have to throw away church tradition. But we have to be very careful that we're not putting tradition in front of Jesus Christ. Christ has to come first. Traditions of music. Traditions of teaching. I've had people get offended because I didn't wear a jacket or a tie in the pulpit. Now, fortunately, Dean's back. He got over it. You know why I don't wear a jacket and a tie in the pulpit very often? Are you looking at me this morning? I'm drowning up here. Because I can't wear one shirt without a shirt underneath it, and then you put the new—I mean, the tie around my neck—and and then put a jacket on the top. I did a wedding out on the lake one year, one summer. I did a wedding out on the lake, and and usually I will—I'll talk to the people. How do you how do you want me to dress? And a lot of times they're like, "We want you in jeans. We want you in jeans. We want you in a t-shirt." I'm like, yeah, my people. And like they look at me funny sometimes. Like, well, in a suit, a black suit, white, white shirt. We were on the lakefront. And it was like July. Right by where the boats were all tuning up their engines. Yay. But if we get that, that upset over somebody that doesn't wear a tie or a jacket... Or a woman that doesn't have pantyhose on. I don't know how women ever wore pantyhose in Florida to begin with. Up north where it's snowing, I, I get it. But we place too much tradition, too much tradition on music. I prefer the older hymns. Danny prefers the older hymns. Most of the people that go here prefer the older hymns. You know what we sing? The older hymns. But that doesn't mean there's not new hymns and new songs that aren't good. But people lose their minds sometimes. Danny will come to me. He's like, hey, is it okay if we do this song? Like I'm going to yell at him or something. No, if it's biblically based and they want to do it as a special, more power to them. No problem with that. We can't let tradition get in the way of God because here's the thing about hymns. When they came out, it was all new music. Amazing Grace was a bar song. At least that's where it was sung first. A lot of churches refused to have Amazing Grace sung in their churches because it 
It was the drunks would sing it at the bars. They refused to have pianos in their churches because the, the only place you saw pianos were in concert halls and bars. And you're going to bring that into a church? Heathens. You have to be careful of that. Careful of that. Because verse number four tells us for something very interesting about the righteousness of God. It says, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. The righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. It's not the rules. It's not the, the laws. It's not all those things. The righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. There's a, a revival that's been going on. I think it's done now up in Asbury, Ashbury at a college. I'm not probably not saying that right. I'm not even sure. What, what is that, Kentucky? Where's that at? Is it Kentucky? I know very little about that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything bad about that, but this is what I've noticed is the only people that they're putting on TV about that, they talk about God. And we're all like, oh, yeah, God, that's great. God was here. God was present. God is doing this. God is doing this. You know what? I haven't heard them mention one time. And like I said, I'm not speaking out against that revival because I'm hoping that it's real. And I also understand that the media puts on what the media wants us to see. And that's what I'm seeing. But nobody's mentioning Jesus Christ. If it's a revival without Jesus Christ, it's an emotional revival. It's not a spiritual revival. Again, I'm not talking bad about those people. I don't, I know, I just gave you everything I know about that whole situation. I haven't had time to look into it. I haven't had the, the, the energy to look into it. So I, I'm not sure what's happening up there. I pray it's a real revival. I pray it's a revival that'll start a spark that'll spread all across this country and around this world. Because that's what we need. Whether it is or not, I don't know. But all I'm saying is if we have a revival, whether it's there or here or anywhere else, and it's absent of Jesus, it's not a revival. Because Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. This is what the problem was with the Jews. They, they had everything of God except they excluded Jesus Christ. And they talked about God. Day and night they talked about God. They served God. They did rituals to God. Everything they did was about God, but they excluded Jesus Christ. Paul's praying for them because they've established their own way of righteousness. They think they know better than God. They think that they can come up with something that's better than Jesus Christ. Verse number five says, For, for Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. God's righteousness is, is, is opposed to man's righteousness. So when we try and do our righteousness, it, it runs up against God's righteousness. There's only two ways that we can become righteous. There's two ways. Did you know that? There's two ways. One, we can be born and lead a sinless life. Never sin. Never be corrupted by sin. Never sin in act or in word or thought. And if we can do that, then we're righteous. Problem is we can't do that. So none have been able to do that except for Jesus Christ. So if we can't become righteous that way, then we have to go to the second way. We have to take one who is righteous, who is willing to sacrifice and stand in our place. A person who has lived a sinless life, 
who stands before us as the ideal man. This ideal man who made the sacrifice and it stands before God in our place. The man whose robe of righteousness we put on because our righteousness is his filthy rags. Those are our two choices. So if you've ever sinned or you've ever thought about sinning, I'm going to make it real easy for you. That's all of you. Then you're excluded from group number one. So you're in group number two. Your only choice, your only possible way to become righteous is through Jesus Christ. That's it. Not through the church. Not through traditions. Not through ritual acts. Not through the Lord's Supper. Not through baptism. Not through anything like that. Not that those things are bad. They just can't make you righteous. They can't save your soul. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Verse number 6, chapter number 10. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ uh, up from the dead. He's saying the, the, the point of this is, is man is searching for a utopia. And they're searching for a way to go up and get Christ. Or they're searching for a way to go down into the depths and make the sacrifice. And the thing is, we can't do that. In the Old Testament, they tried to build a tower. They called it the Tower of Babel because man's languages was confounded there. They tried to build a tower because they thought, if we can build a tower high enough, we can reach God. And we look at that today and say, well, that's so dumb. But how many of us stack up our good works thinking that if we can stand on top of a big pile of good works that we can reach God? It's just as foolish. In and of itself, there was nothing wrong with the tower. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with good works. But when the tower and the good works are used to try and usurp God, to try and make our righteousness over his righteousness... You can't reach God. But praise God, he has reached us. He sent his son down to earth to reach us. We don't have to reach up to God. We don't have to build a tower. God has already reached down to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Since Christ has come, the gospel does not require a man to scale heavens, nor the great abyss, to be made righteous, those requirements would be impossible anyways. The gospel only demands faith, an open confession that Christ has done. Why would God commission his son to go to such limits? Simply because he loves man that much. He loves us that much. Very simply, man must confess. And John 6, 33 says, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Man must confess with his mouth Lord Jesus Christ. He must confess that Jesus is the Lord from heaven. He must make a confession. Confession is hard. It seems like something that's really easy to do, but when you look at what confession really is and the depths of confession... You can't understand why it's so hard because when we confess that, that Jesus Christ is God, when we confess that Jesus Christ is the Savior, or the Jewish case, the, if, they, if, they, if they acknowledge that he's the Messiah, 
that means some pretty big things. That means that he is righteous and we are not. That means that he is in control and we are not. That means that he makes the rules and we do not. Now, for most people, I know that that's not as hard as it sounds because they've gotten to a point in their life where they realize that they can't do it anymore. It's not working for them. I used to love teaching out at the jail. They'd pack the inmates in. I think they just wanted to get out of their cells for a little while. They'd pack the inmates in. We'd, we'd have 50, 60 to 100, 100 inmates in a room about a third this size. Just everybody shoulder to shoulder in there. Me up front and a guard in the back. And I'd stand up there and I'd tell them about Jesus Christ. And I'd tell them about these two paths. The path of their righteousness and the path of God's righteousness. Now what I liked about them, that, by the way, they're not that much different than you guys but they had an advantage over you. They knew that what they were doing wasn't working. And I would tell them, I said, where I'm standing, it doesn't look like your life choices. It doesn't look like your decisions. It doesn't like your righteousness is getting it done. But I can say the same thing about you. Your righteousness will never get it done. It's easier for them to see. It's easier to see when you're wearing an orange jumpsuit and somebody's telling you what you can eat, when you can eat, how much you can eat, where you sleep, when the lights go off, when the lights go on, when you stand up, when you go outside, when you come back in, it becomes a little easier to see than those days. But they're just as lost as we are without Jesus Christ. Not more, not less, just as unrighteous, just as lost. John 6, 33, Jesus said, For the bread of God is, is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. You see, Jesus didn't just come for a few select people. He came to bring life to any that would accept. He brought life to the entire world. Secondly, not only did we have to believe that Jesus Christ came from above, we have to believe that he was raised again, that he was raised for the dead. We must believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. We've talked about this before. Romans chapter number 10, verse number 9, that if thou shalt confess with the mouth of the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto the righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, it takes the heart and it takes the mouth. Why does it take the heart and the mouth? Well, the mouth can say anything it wants. But the heart has to follow the mouth. Or the mouth has to follow the heart. So the mouth can lie. The mouth can tell stories, but the heart doesn't lie. The heart always tells the truth. So we believe it here in the heart. Not here. It's okay to believe it here, but this isn't a requirement. It's required to believe it here. By the way, when he's talking about heart, he's not talking about our physical heart. He's talking about our, our inner heart. He's talking about our essence. He's talking about our soul. We must believe with the heart. And confession is made with the mouth. I've had people read this and tell me, well, what about people that can't talk? Can they not be saved? That's not what this means. This means an outward expression. So if the cat's got your tongue and you can't find the words, write it down. 
God can hear your thoughts. By the way, God can hear your thoughts and Satan can't. So sometimes when we pray, it's just as well not to pray it out loud sometimes. A man believes in a righteousness. That is, a man believes in Jesus Christ. And God takes that faith, just like he did for Moses, just like he did for the saints in the Old Testament. He takes that belief and counts it as righteousness. Then the man confesses Christ to salvation. He openly confesses Christ. Matthew 10, 32 and 33 says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I, I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Verse number 11. We're going to close with this verse. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not believe, shall not be ashamed. That's what happens when I read half the verse and try to rely on my memory for the second half of the verse. I go on to the next verse in my brain. God's righteousness and salvation it delivers a person from shame. We can't be a believer of God and ashamed of God. We can't be a, a believer in Christ and ashamed of Christ. I know Christians, I've talked to pastors before that they, they don't talk about Jesus very much because they say, well, Jesus is polarizing. Jesus is divisive. So we talk about God and we talk about the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, he causes people to make a decision. He causes people to make a choice. And I'm like, are you even hearing yourself talk? I, I was shocked. When I was working at the hospital, and, and I'd work with other pastors, at the things that they would tell me. I had a pastor tell me one time, I said something about, about hell. I'd read a study about hell and about how, that I forget what the number was. It was a large number of pastors never talk about hell from the pulpit. And I was just casually mentioning it to him. He's like, well, I don't, I don't really talk about hell. Well, he, Why? And he said, well, who am I to tell people what hell is really like? I've never been there. Who are you? You're their pastor. That's part of the job description is to open up the Word of God and tell people what the Word of God says. Who am I? I was shocked. This is a person who pastored a Baptist church. Well, they changed the name. It wasn't Baptist anymore. But it was still Baptistic in teaching, supposedly. They don't mention hell? I wonder what else they're not mentioning. But notice two things about this verse, verse number 11. It says, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Whosoever believeth in Christ, that's the requisite for being saved. It's open for anybody, both the Jew and the Gentile. In John 7 37, it says, In the last day, that, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood in Christ, saying, If any man thirst, not just if any Jewish man or any Gentile man or any rich man or any poor man, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. The gospel of Jesus Christ is open to all, but it's not forced upon any. Secondly, the true believer is not ashamed. He's not ashamed to stand in the face of God. 
remember growing up, every year we'd watch The Wizard of Oz. That's one of those movies. Has anybody in here not seen The Wizard of Oz? That's kind of a universal movie, right? You've seen it? Probably most of you have seen it multiple times. But you remember the one scene where they first stand before the great and powerful Oz? And they're all scared. And they're all shaking. And at one point, the lion just takes off running and jumps out the window. That's how scared they are, because they're in front of the, the great and powerful Oz. You know why they were so scared? They were scared for a couple reasons. One, they didn't understand, well, they didn't understand who the great and powerful Oz was. That's a whole different issue. But they didn't understand his power, and they didn't understand his mercy. It turns out the great and powerful Oz was really kind of a nice guy. But people weren't responding to him being a nice guy. And we stand before God. We don't stand before God like the great and powerful laws with our knees knocking together in fear. We stand before him in respect. That type of fear. But not fear. If, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we put on the righteousness of God. That's why the Bible says we can walk boldly into his throne room because we're not walking in with our tattered rags. We're not walking in with our unrighteousness. We're walking in with his righteousness. And we don't need to be ashamed of his righteousness. So we walk boldly into his throne room. Not our knees knocking together. Not worrying he's going to hit us with a lightning bolt. We're not ashamed. Colossians 3.10 And have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. Secondly, we're not ashamed to confess Christ before men. If we've truly accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we should not be ashamed to tell other people. We, we confess things all day long. If I went around the room and said, who makes the best pickup trucks? I could get you guys to confess and confess and confess about who makes the biggest pickup trucks. Two-thirds of you are probably wrong, but that doesn't mean you're not going to boldly confess. Or if I started saying, who, you know, what's better, baseball or football? And the West stands up and says, soccer. Uh, it's right there, man. I'm sorry. It, we confess those things all day long. Where, where's the best place to have lunch after church? Where's the best taco restaurant? Who makes the best pizzas? We confess these things all day long. We all know it's Hungry Howie's, right? The things we used to eat when we were kids. Why don't we have that same boldness about confessing Jesus Christ? Because our world is in desperate need of Jesus. I watch the news every morning. A lot of people tell me, I don't watch the news anymore, it's too depressing. I watch the news every morning because I start out my day reminding myself how much the world needs Jesus Christ. About a month ago, we had a murder-suicide not too far from the church. Last year, we had another one, well, just right down the road over here. And then a couple years ago, we had uh, a murder, not a suicide, right down here. That was a murder, too. And, and every time one of these things happens, I'm wondering, did we fail? Did we fail to reach those people with the gospel? And I, I, know, I know we can't reach everybody. But 
we at least trying? Because we've got to be interacting with these people. They're our neighbors. They've got to be in our workplaces. They've got to be in our schools. They've got to be in the stores that we shop. And we talk about putting on Christ to stand in the presence of God. Are we putting on Christ to stand in the presence of our community? Are we unashamed of the gospel? Are we unashamed of Jesus Christ? I hope we are. I hope we are not ashamed. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You're going to go through bad things in your life. Some of you have already gone through bad things in your life. Some of you lost a loved one this week. Those are bad times. And the world is watching because you say you're a Christian. And you lose your job. Or you say you're a Christian and the doctor calls that cancer diagnosis. And the world is watching. <coughs> and they're going to see how you handle it. And then they're going to ask, how are you so not happy, but joyful? How do you have peace when everything seems to be crumbling around you? Do you have an answer for him? It, it's great to have it, by the way. But do you have an answer when they ask you? Hopefully you do. And you're not ashamed of the, of the reason. I look back in my life and I'm thinking, I don't know how I got through these things. And I do know how I got through these things. It's through Jesus Christ. And I'm not afraid to tell people that. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But you notice what that doesn't say. It doesn't say, well, be ready to explain God. Be ready to explain this thing that took place in the Old Testament 6,000 years ago. Do you have an explanation for that? Well, probably not. That's not what it's asking. It's asking about the hope that's within you. That's pretty simple. You can tell them, look, I used to be just like you. I used to live my day being blown about by the winds of this world. I used to, be, I used to, to live a, a hopeless existence. And then somebody told me about Jesus Christ. I humbled myself. I accepted him as my Savior. <coughs> I believed in him. And now he's always with me. How can I not have hope? when I walk through every storm with the master of the universe? How can you not have hope? How can you not have peace? How can you not have joy? Knowing that he is in control of everything.